A very warm welcome to you, to all the other welcomes you've already had. I have the privilege of leading this site, uh, as well as the, the, kind of the rest of the church as well. So <laughs> it's great fun. If you've got a Bible, can you grab it nice and quick? Galatians chapter 5. I'm genuinely sad to say that we're kind of approaching the end of our series in Galatians. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's what you're meant to do. You don't just go, yeah, thank God, Tom. No, no, you go, yes, that's a sad thing. And uh, maybe you don't know much about the Bible, maybe you're kind of new to Christianity. I was an atheist up until the age of 20, so I wouldn't have known much about what Galatians really meant. But this book is, it is, I love it. It is glorious and rocket-fueled and something that is, I think it's quite edgy. I love it. It's Paul as a, a relatively young man, well not a young man, but it's his first letter anyway. And he's writing it to these churches that he'd started in what's called Galatia, which is now modern-day southern Turkey or northern Turkey. And he's written to these churches because he started them. And what seems to be happening is that already they seem to be kind of going off track. He has preached this amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. He's the hero. He's the center. The whole secret to this life is actually forgetting yourself more and more and having the eyes of your hearts fixed perpetually on someone else which isn't how we naturally think we're going to find joy. He's been saying this to them, they've got it, hurrah, we cry. And then we've heard the awful, tragic news that this group of Judaizers, this is Christians, we think, but who are more really about Judaism, and they've come in behind Paul, they're the bane of his life, as it were, and they've come in saying, yes, yeah, the gospel and Jesus is important, but make sure you really get into into the Old Testament and to Moses and doing the things to make sure God thinks you're impressive. And we've been looking at how, although for most of us I'm sure we don't struggle with that exact problem, the actual heart of the issue is the same nowadays. You could summarize it as the lie that we need to perform. That we need to perform. Jesus' performance was pretty good, but you do still need to perform, O oh, teachers. Listen to Ofsted. You do need to perform. Your identity really does matter in terms of how well you do. Uh, those of you who are in the NHS, make sure you perform. Mums, as you have your first or your second children, the way that your child manifests its behaviour, it really does, it's very tied to your identity. You're either a success or a failure depending on how they perform. You see how we go with this. This lie of performance, it kills us. And he is fatherly in his zeal to them to, to very, with, with really firm words, say to them, this isn't okay. It will kill your Christian life. And as I've meditated on this book and as I've, as I've allowed it to just sort of drip into my soul, I found myself absolutely, well, just reminded of the 21st century need for us to realize, yeah, we can also easily slip into this. And today as we come to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to look at a verse. We're going to really major in a verse. If you open it up before you, we're going to really zoom in today on one verse, which is verse 24. But before we read that, there is a very famous verse at the beginning of this chapter, which kind of you need to read with like a brave heart, kind of Scottish accent. Are you up for that? Are you up for that? Hi. If you're Scottish here, please don't be offended. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's going very strange. Have we got it up? I think we've got it up. Go on, Lauren, you can do it. There we go. 
Well, anyway, if you haven't, you can, you, you know, it's very famous. Here we go. One, two, three. For freedom. Okay, let's just read it normally. This is going wrong. In my head, I thought it would work, but it didn't. It's okay. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stop. Let's read that one more time. One, two, three. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And you, it's hard to read this, even on a slightly chilly February day, wherever we are. And you might be feeling a bit... It's hard to read this and not have some kind of at least inner smile to some degree. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He was good enough at the cross in his life and his death and his resurrection. He was good enough. He set us free from trying hard. Hallelujah. He's done it. He's the king. So he has now dismissed us, as it were, from trying to obey the law. He's fulfilled it and he's dismissed us from having to to come under its, its kind of continual finger-wagging presence in our life. So when you feel that side of you which says, I ought to be a better mom, I ought to be a better husband, I ought to be a better teacher, when you find yourself saying, I ought, and that pressure comes in, this verse comes to our aid. This verse comes to our aid for freedom. He wants us to actually have a life of freedom. Not just talking about freedom, thinking about freedom. Actually, that your friends go, you just seem remarkably free. When those things don't go the way that they, you want them to, you genuinely seem free. And when I read this, I remember I became a Christian when I was age 20. I remember reading this quite early on. And I, like most of us here, brought a smile to my face. Some verses are very confusing to read. You go, I don't really understand this. This is, this is one of those verses. It's just like, oh, I like this. And he goes on in the rest of this whole book to talk about the way that we get free is by intimacy with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who's been poured out from heaven because of what Jesus has done. And so it's this wonderful verse. And this is what I think it naturally does to most of us. It sets very high expectations. One of the biggest lessons I've learned in my marriage and in fact, not just in my marriage, but in the whole of life, is the issue of expectations. Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. For example, when you have a day off, my expectations are one thing. <laughs> and there is someone called Josie Shaw. She's not here, so I can talk about her behind her back. <laughs> Josie's day off, her relaxing is a little different to mine, shall we say. And so over the years, you may be staggered to know we've occasionally had the crossword where we've had to kind of somehow have come to this compromise because my expectations are so different to hers. It's not just in marriage, it's all of life. So often, um, so often you have these expectations about your holiday, right? I know it's going to be amazing, counting down the days. You're married, your marriage, some of you are going to get married or you're having babies, or your expectations of what your parents will be like as they get older. They're just going to be the most phenomenal, perfect people. We have these expectations of the new house we're going to move into or whatever it might be. Expectations are massive. Now, this is, this is what I want to laser in on today. Do you agree with that point about expectations? Do you point, agree with the point about Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, that it kind of sets this amazing expectation in our soul? Yes. Here's the problem. Why is it then, Paul, that if it is for freedom that Christ has set me free, past tense, why is it that so often, if I'm really honest, when I genuinely look at my life, in so many subtle areas, I don't actually feel that free. I don't actually feel as free as I kind of feel, chapter 5, verse 1, leads me to expect 
Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Maybe everyone else is like, no, I feel completely free. I feel from envy and pride and jealousy and worry and disappointment. I won't ask for a show of hands because I bet you're all saying, yeah, isn't that weird? What is going on? Why is it that Paul, with a straight face and total integrity, gives us this Braveheart verse, but then actually the reality is for so many of us, if not all of us, what does that actual freedom look like? And this is where, when I read this a few months ago actually, I coupled for the first time verse 1 with verse 24. And I discovered something I'd never seen before, which both challenged me but profoundly encouraged me as to unlocking this apparent confusing element of why the so-called freedom that we apparently have doesn't always feel like this. Are you ready? Here we go. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have, now this is the key word, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Then we come on to another Braveheart verse. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. What I want to try and unpack a little bit this morning in the brief time we have is this. I've called it Spirit-led crucifixion. That what Paul does here is, in the same few verses, he says, by the Spirit we are now entering into a life of complete freedom. And yet, in the same chunk of of writing, he also describes this life of freedom actually like an ongoing crucifixion. Isn't that shocking? You see, maybe, maybe it's just me, but when I think about freedom, someone says freedom, I don't generally therefore think crucifixion. I think of freedom like running through fields and sort of, you know, hands in the air and kind of, I don't know, Timothy or something. You know, I feel like freedom... I don't think crucifixion. And although it sounds maybe a bit serious and almost a bit depressing, I really believe this is genuinely going to unlock, for many of you, a, a wrong sense that you're failing at heart today. That you think, I should be having this, this incredible demonstration of freedom in my life, but I don't feel like I am. And what I, I believe the Lord wants to tenderly say today is this is that actually, as we're going to see today, because crucifixion is not a neat thing, it's a messy thing, it's a painful thing. But just as it, in a, it, it was an incense to the Father, as we do our own version, not now to get right with God, but out of obedience to the Spirit, that it is something that brings great joy to our Father. So let me pray, and then we're going to uh, unpack this verse particularly. Lord, we bless you that you are the hero and that you have given us in this scripture this most wonderful, incredible key to understand life in the spirit. Lord, many of us would say we are charismatics. We love the spirit. We love the gifts. We love that. And I bless you for that. But Lord, I want to ask today that we will also let the whole of your word, the whole of your word do its work in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, we're going to laser in on verse 24, but I can't just read one verse. I'm sorry, this is too good. We're going to kind of work our way into it briefly. I'll make a few comments as we come into verse 24, okay? So first of all, let's just read uh, a couple of verses from verse 13 to set the scene. Here we go again. Sounds familiar. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom. He's really wanting us to know this, okay? The Christian life is about a freedom that you can't get any other way. So if you're not a Christian here today, I want to, with a big smile on my face, say to you, I promise you, because the Bible says this, there is an internal freedom given by God, offered by God, that is absolutely genuine and real. Which means even when your external circumstances are not as you would wish, there is an amazing freedom that only God can give, which he died in order for you to have. So he's talking about freedom. And then he says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So this is helpful. These couple of verses are talking about bad striving. Bad striving. Striving between each other. This phrase here, if you bite and devour, it's almost like animal language. It's the idea of almost lions or fierce predators literally taking chunks out of each other. And what he's wanted to do first of all here, before talking about this key verse, he says, just let me say in these two verses, do not allow bad striving in amongst you. Where there is this striving and there's this biting and there's this taking chunks out of each other in the church community, even if you don't intend it, which is often the case. Don't allow that to be your culture. And I want to say, can I just say, I'm so thrilled at being one of the pastors of this church because I think it's rare, very rare. And I don't say that lightly. I try to watch and encourage many leaders to watch out. How are people treating each other? Are they using language that's kind and merciful and gracious? It's not always the case in church families. And he's saying here, he's worried, first of all, about these guys getting into this place where they're biting and they're devouring each other. So he starts by warning against a bad striving, okay? There's a bad, it's you're striving against each other. Can I just as a throwaway just say, husbands, be gentle with your wives. Be kind to them. Don't bite and devour them. Parents with your kids, be gentle. I felt God two years ago, say one word to me when I went to my sabbatical about my marriage. He just said, be kind. Just the word kindness. I just kept on saying, be kind, Tom. Be kind to Joseph. Let me just say, I know it's not rocket science, but listen, don't bite and devour each other. What you say, and often it's not even to the person, is it? It's often about them. That's the way often it expresses itself. Don't get into that, he's saying. Don't, don't be harsh in your language. That's a bad striving. And then what he does is he contrasts it in these next verses with a good striving, an internal striving. This internal striving, which we're called to, to fight a good fight of faith, as Paul says to Timothy, there's a good fight. There's a bad fight and there's good fights. And this passage we're about to now read is in contrast to this external, interpersonal bad striving. We now read about a good striving. So already, can I just say, think about that. Freedom does not mean freedom from temptation. Freedom does not mean freedom from striving. That's going to be in heaven, all right? So just to be encouraged immediately, 
He's talking now about a good internal striving by the Spirit that every single Christian, man or woman or child, is called to do. And I love this because what he's doing is, it's just, God is so kind. He's first of all just saying, he knows that so often we're much more prone to that first type of striving, yeah? Well, just, you know, I won't say it to her face, but I'll just take a little bite out of her through that comment I'll make to her, her friend. Because I need to kind of get it off my chest. We all tend to do that. And what he says is, actually, I don't want that to be your community. I want you to be about an internal striving. An internal striving. I've said this before. For me, one of the things, and I, you can hold me to, to account on this. The older I get, I want to be one of those people who is, it's very rare for, for you to hear me be negative about someone else. I want that over my life. And I want it to be marked out that I'm much more aware of my own internal fallings and failings. That's what I want. A couple of times I found myself forced to challenge older people because they're so critical, so negative. And I'm aware that we are a million miles away from being perfect. And do you know what? That's why we call it a jar of clay. This church is just a jar of clay. But there's been times I've forced to say, listen, I want to take on constructive criticisms. I hear that. But let me hear the language of contrition in your heart. I want to hear mainly about what God's doing in your soul. That's a good striving. It's weighted that way. That's what I want over my life. Anyone here? I want that over my marriage. Josie's not perfect. But you know what? That's not what I'm called to focus on. I'm called to focus on the fact that Tom's not perfect. That's a far more Christ-like approach. And it sounds obvious, but you know what? It's so easily to slip into bad striving first. So he's now sort of casting this amazing picture of good striving, if I can put it that way. Here we go. Verse 16, but don't do that, do this. I say walk by the Spirit. So just to state the obvious, he's talking in metaphor, okay? He's helping us to visualize what it means to have a life, yes, of freedom, but what does that actually mean? Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For they are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. This is extraordinary. He is saying, when you become a Christian, you, you are given the gift of righteousness so that you are as righteous positionally as Jesus before the Father. He hears you like he hears his son. However, <laughs> in terms of your Monday morning reality, it don't feel like that always, does it? <laughs> or is it just me? No. Come on, be honest. And this is so encouraging. He's saying this is bizarre dynamic in the heart of every Christian. Some of you are new Christians here today. And I want to say with all my heart, don't be confused when you're like, I'm almost like two people. Yeah, you are. You're in Christ, but you're also kind of the old person. And he uses this language to help us understand and to actually therefore not get confused when one minute you're like, I just want to pray all day. And then the next minute you're tempted to do something that you think, what's going on here? He says, no, no, no. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And he says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
<laughs> it doesn't need an awful lot of explanation, does it? Yet what does it mean? And, and do you notice this? It's interesting. We're about to come on to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit we will talk to our kids about. Isn't it fascinating? In the previous couple of verses, it's talking about orgies and sorcery. Isn't that incredible? I, I just find the fact that the Bible is so, how can I put it, just raw and earthy. If you're new to Christianity, you're looking into it, never think it's this kind of like, you know, I don't know, softy, softy thing. It's describing the real kind of earthy sins that this world is locked into. I find it very convicting. And he says, if you find yourself coming out of this sermon series thinking, well, wait a minute, if it's all about Jesus, I can do what I want. If you think that, and therefore you start to, as it were, take God for granted, there is this terrifying warning. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, most of us in this room deeply believe that God has chosen us. God keeps us safe. God ensures our safe passage through this life. Amen, I do too. However, alongside those encouraging verses, there are the warning verses throughout Scripture so that we do not take God for granted. And can I just say to you, just to state the obvious, let's not be those who, who, who entertain getting into those things thinking, well, we can always ask God for forgiveness. That's terrifying. And it, can I say, humbly, it's very, very present in the UK. It's very present. Now, they might not say, I'm going to do all those things. But the idea that to follow Jesus just means he kind of, he's loving and he's kind and he's always forgiving. Yeah, he's also the God of the universe. And the Bible says that the grace of God teaches us to say no, actually. <laughs> we don't do it to get saved. We do it because of what he's done, as we're going to look at in a moment. He then goes on to say to contrast it. But instead of that, he says, the fruit of living close to the Spirit, intimately with him, is this. Is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And here we go, this most amazing verse. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. And I want to say two things here this morning. Two things really about this idea, verse 24, where he brings together life in the, life in the Spirit, which is freedom, with this idea of crucifying the flesh. What, what, what is he talking about? How can that make sense? Well, there's two things I want to look at here today that I think will help us. Two things about crucifixion itself. John Stott brilliantly points out, who's an amazing Bible commentator, he says, there's two things about crucifixion that really help us here. The first is that crucifixion was pitiless. It was pitiless. And then secondarily, it was painful. It's pitiless and painful. And what I want to argue over the next few moments is just this, is that actually life in the Spirit, this freedom, alongside that, we find the need to align ourselves with the biblical picture here, that as Christ followers, as we pick up our cross, we need to be pitiless. We need to have no pity, no mercy. 
over the sin and the flesh in our lives, which is a huge challenge. But also, we need to be those who are ready for it to be painful, which rather than being a depressing thing, I actually think is wonderfully encouraging when we realize that's the experience of our lives. So first of all, he says, it is those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Crucifixion then, first thing to say is, is that it's something that is very, very much reserved for those who were regarded as the worst of criminals. It was the worst criminals at the time when this was written that, that, that had the experience of crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't a, a kind of um, a way of killing people. If you read about now in America how the different types of execution, the big discussions that go on is what is the most merciful way of doing it? And people will disagree over it. But the whole idea is, is that it needs to be done in the most merciful way. In stark contrast to that, crucifixion was deliberately, was deliberately something that expressed this absolute delight almost <laughs> in causing something to, to, to go on and on. It was something reserved for the worst criminals. And what he's saying is here is that when we think about that fleshly part of us, the first thing is it deserves a crucifixion. Now, what we have to understand is, is, that, is that in the Bible, it talks about us, uh, us past tense being crucified. For, so, for example, in Galatians 2.20, if you look back there, it says, we have been crucified. In Romans chapter 6, it says, we have been crucified. There's a past tense thing that has been done to us. Now, I know this is a little bit, woo, what do you mean? But the Bible says that somehow, when we became Christians, it wasn't just making a decision in Sunday school. There was a kind of crucifixion that occurred, that we were crucified with Christ. It's a past tense thing that was done to us. But what, again, John Stott points out here is there is a difference between that and actually what he's talking about here. And also, particularly if you're interested in another passage, Romans chapter 8, where it talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That it's the same idea. It's this ongoing crucifixion. So the picture here is very, very vivid. It's that when you become a Christian, you are actually agreeing to the crucifixion of that old fleshly sinful part of you. And then you agree to ongoingly crucify it. Why? Because we have to be those who understand the Bible's very, very vivid, clear hatred of our sin. The Bible isn't kind of like, you know, um, half-hearted about it. It's saying, I want you, O oh Christian, to literally to, to feel something of God's hatred of sin by the very word that I'm using here. You crucify the flesh. Does that make sense? You can't, be, you can't have pity on it. You've got to be pitiless. You've got to be merciful, merciless on it. And this is, this is hard for us, I think, because some of those things that he lists there, we can go, well, those are obviously really bad. I, could, I would be pitiless. I wouldn't have any mercy on myself and those things. But some of those other things like envy and jealousy, those aren't, are those really in the same category? Is it such a big deal? And I think... As you go through the scriptures and the Bible, and the older you get, the more you realize that there isn't this sort of division in the Bible as to some sins are, are, are okay and some, some sins are really serious. There is this somewhat terrifying and sobering reality that because God is so perfect, these sins are 
all before him equally serious. It's a little bit hard to get your head around, but I suppose a very sort of imperfect <laughs> illustration is, is often you'll find in a marriage, one person in the marriage will, will really hate something. And because of that, if you're married to that person, you kind of come to normally join in with that. So a silly example, bear with me, is often I've heard, for example, when it comes to watching box sets, the husband may have an appetite for one thing, and the partner, the lady, may be like, oh, I, I don't like that. I don't like that. I, I really don't like that. thing. It's just a bit violent or a bit gruesome or whatever. And often, therefore, they won't watch it. And if you're smiling, you know what I'm talking about. You're actually, okay, so we don't watch that. And in a bit of a similar way, what he's saying is here is actually, when you belong to Christ, I love that phrase, when you belong to Christ, you, you join with him in his hatred of sin. Your old self doesn't hate it. You probably have realized that. Your old self quite likes it. But this phrase here says those who belong to Christ. It's this intimate picture. When you belong to someone, you actually start to love the things they love and actually not like the things that they like. I was in the Beanie yesterday, and uh, it's a, a library in the center of town. And there was this art show of the guy who did Bagpuss and Clangers. Now, many of you are thinking, what on earth are you talking about? But my daughter, Lily, who's a bit arty, she adores the Clangers. And I literally, was, we, were, we went up into the first level, and I was looking around for it. I saw it before her. I was like, Lily! Greg, eat that! Original manuscripts! And she kind of was coming around like, oh, looking at this Clangers thing. Absolutely amazed. I was like, what is the matter with me? Like, what, why am I so bothered about the Clangers? Oh, it's because Lily loves the clangers. She loves that. So I love it. The, I, she belongs to me. I belong to her. And so the things that she grows up, she loves, I learn to love. Because I love her. And when you become a Christ follower, it doesn't mean that you come to church on a Sunday. It doesn't mean that you just tick a box. It means that you start to belong to someone else. And it means that his hatred of things should become our hatred of things because of our intimacy with him. He hates sin. He really hates it. He, he hung on the cross for hours, naked, being butchered, alone. And every single minute screams at us, I hate sin. And he now lives in us and with us as Christians. It isn't about what you think, it's about what he thinks. It's about his hatred of something. We keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit hates sin. I love this. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the double sending of heaven. He sent his Son so that we could become sons of God. He sent his Spirit so that we could have the experience of being sons. It's the double sending. And Jesus and the Spirit agree they both hate sin. So we have to start by saying... The whole of this life, this freedom life, starts with us realizing it is a life of freedom. But listen, it is not a freedom from not liking sin. It's a freedom to start belonging to Christ, loving Christ, and Christ's affections and his passions starting to become ours. That's what the real freedom is. But it is this, it is this crucifixion. And, and the image here is shocking. Think about it for a moment. It's like he's saying, listen, don't miss this. Imagine 
that fleshly part of you. Imagine that, that sinful, those sinful things he's mentioned. The envy, the pride, the sexual immorality, all those things. He says, you have to join with me in pinning them to the cross. You crucify them. You, you don't entertain them. You don't just allow them to manifest ongoingly. You need to take them and you need to be pitiless and you need to ram them to the cross like they did with the criminals. And every day of your life you hold it there and the Spirit joins in and he helps you to hold it there. And Christ comes in and he says, Amen, keep holding it there. And every day of our lives with mess and with the help of the Spirit we, we, we learn bit by bit to keep crucifying the flesh. And when we think, is it a big deal? Is it worth it? Yes, because Christ has already said, I've gone through literal crucifixion. That's how much I hate it. And as his person starts to more and more infect us and affect us, we start to join with him, learning with him slowly. Crucifixion is, it, it has a definite end, but it's slow, isn't it? It goes on and on and on. But first of all, it tells us, it screams to us, this life in the Spirit, this freedom, and there's many brands of Christianity that they talk about life in the, free, in the Spirit, and it's all freedom. And, and you don't hear an awful lot about sin. You don't hear an awful lot about repentance. You don't hear an awful lot about picking up, picking up your cross. And often, if that's your only brand of Christianity, when life gets hard and things appear in your soul or in other people's, we have no reference point. I thought we we're living in the Spirit. Yeah, but... To be charismatics who live in the Spirit means that we are also joining with the Holy Spirit and Christ. In, in we are daily crucifying the flesh. We hold it to the cross. It's dying. But we must join doing that. We must align ourselves with God's perspective of sin. Even things on that list that don't seem as bad as the others. That's what he's saying. Get into good striving. Delight in good striving. Be that kind of person. Decide it, and you're by the Spirit. This is this is what you, Holy Spirit, want me to be like. And I celebrate, I celebrate that process that I see in my life and in your life. One of my daughters suffers with jealousy over another daughter. I won't mention who. And when I see that jealousy, it, it kills me. But I know that the way for her to actually kill it is not by being told off. But is realizing, do you know what? She is more loved by me and Josie. She doesn't need to be. She needs to get in line with the love of the Father. Ultimately him, but me. And actually, I love it because this work of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace. Is, at one level, we can't enjoy those things until we are willing to crucify the flesh. But at the same time, it's often then when we're living in the good of the Spirit that we're then unable to do it. It's this virtuous circle. It's not one route or the other, in my experience. It's both. I was chatting to a brother fairly recently, and he, he, he confessed to struggling with pornography. And as we talked, no voices were raised or anything like that, but it just became clear as we, as we did it that Jesus was in the room. It's the only way we can put it, really. Christ was there. You couldn't see him with your eyes, but the atmosphere just changed. And as we talked about it, the implications of it, if he continued walking in the flesh, the fear of the Lord filled that, that place where we were. And he, 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 he himself said, I, 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 just, I know, I've, I've just had a revelation. I know that this, this profoundly offends Christ. He died to free me from this. And actually something was broken in that moment. 
He had seen it as a, an issue. And then he, now it wasn't an issue. This was, this was something that all of heaven was bothered about. Do you understand? We belong to Christ. It's a privilege and it's a massive responsibility. It's now you and I as Christians here today. It means, yes, Jesus has paid for it, but we join with him in saying, help me to hate it. Let me just ask us today, it, even now, is the Spirit bringing anything to your mind or your heart that you just think, I know I need, I need to make sure that by the Spirit's help and by belonging to Christ, I continue to see it for what it is. Can I say this? Sometimes, sometimes uh, we lie to ourselves. Sometimes, for example, sin and the flesh lie to us. For example, I'm hurt over something. And sometimes we are hurt because someone's unjustly done something. One of the things I've been sobered as I've looked at the reasons I've got hurt in my life is often because of wrong, sinful expectations. Why am I hurt? Well, I thought I was going to have this role or position or things would go this way or this person would treat me in this way. And, and as I've thought about it, I thought, oh, that's, that sense of entitlement in me, <laughs> that's not of God. I'm hurt because of my own sinful, wrong expectations. And as I therefore say, that's not okay, actually. That's pride. I don't have, I don't have rights. <laughs> I'm not entitled. The only right I have is in John 1 to be called the Son of God. So what I do is, by the Spirit, I say, Lord, let, help me to kill that. Do you see, it, it actually leads often, if we don't keep these checks, it doesn't lead to what it says it does. It doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to things that we can confuse and think are, well, if I'm hurt, I'm a victim. Well, kind of. But sometimes the hurt is actually something that we've, we've kind of led ourselves into by mistake. And I know I'm so guilty of that. But learning to become more free. I'm a work in progress, but there's real freedom coming. But the second and final thing I want to say here about crucifixion in this life of the Spirit, it is pitiless. We have to see sin as something very, very serious. But also, this is a slightly more overtly encouraging point, I hope, is that it's, well, it, sounds, it doesn't sound it, but it's painful. <laughs> it is encouraging. Let me, let me say this. I mean, to state the obvious, crucifixion is, is agony, isn't it? And Paul uses it here. As he's coming to his big crescendo of life in the Spirit. He's building this massive case for life in the Spirit. The Spirit's come out. He's been poured out. Hurrah, let's get excited. And yet he's saying here, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified and ongoingly crucify the flesh. When I saw this, I wanted to weep with joy. Because so many of us think when, when I see things in my soul, when I act in a way with those around me that is out of envy or pride or whatever, when I, when I do the, the, the list, the bad list stuff, yeah, I can often think, well, I've been a Christian 17, 18 years. I'm, I, I'm not free. I'm, I'm, I'm just useless. I'm rubbish. I'm not, I'm not glorifying God. And then I suddenly remember that you know what, crucifixion, throughout my life, it will always be painful. It will always be painful. So what I'm trying to say is, I'm trying to get your expectations right. So that you are not confused or depressed or allowing yourself to think you failed 
when actually secretly in your life, the closer you get to Christ, the older you get. For me, the more I'm learning to slow down and to journal, the more painful my life is becoming. It really is. Because he's so wonderful and so perfect. I can't help but see my imperfections more and more. I think that's biblical. I would be worried if the closer I got to him, the more I felt comfortable about myself. I know he loves me. I'm in no doubt of that. But he is other. He is God. And I think what I'm learning is that that pain that comes, and I I really hope you know what I'm talking about, because if you don't, that's far more worrying. If you're going, what are you talking about? I don't ever feel pain of conviction. I don't think there'll be anyone here who is in that category. But what I'm trying to say is think about this. Life in the Spirit is actually a life of both joy, you know, joy, peace, patience, all those other wonderful things. But they come so often through the Spirit convicting us. We're led by the Spirit, so we walk in step with the Spirit. We keep listening to Him. Oh, oh, He's showing me that, that now. I belong to Christ, and Christ is showing me these things. And so I learn actually to do my best to give them to him. And, and I say, Lord Jesus, for one more day, one more day, I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, for one more day, Holy Spirit, I need your help. Jesus, I need help me now. Help me to pin this for one more day. Help me to hold it to the cross. Help me to do that. Help me to join with you as you endeavor to both have it crucified and allow it to stay crucified throughout my life. And what that means is I start to realize, so let me give an illustration. A few weeks ago, in a moment of stupidity, I put something on Facebook about a couple of friends of mine. And at one level, it was quite funny, um, which they did admit. It was quite funny. Um, but the, um, one of the two was really rightly saddened and, and upset by it. And, um, and I said, you know when you do something? And I did it, I was, a, I was just a bit, I don't know, just a bit. I, do you know what? I was living life too fast. That was it. I got out of that slower, more intentional mode, and I just did it. A bit bored. And, um, and this person replied very, very wisely, but very firmly. And even before they'd done it, I was just like, oh, I feel a bit sick. I just don't feel like this is right. And it was the spirit in me saying, this isn't right. You just slightly dishonored them. And, and in their grace, they were so forgiving. They were honest, but f- so forgiving. But every fiber of my being, before they even said anything, wanted to make it right. I hadn't intended to do it, but it had had. It had had that impact on them. And they were totally, immediately forgiving. But the point was, it was very painful. It was very painful to see that. Very painful to admit it. Very painful to pick up the phone and apologize. But you know what? As soon as I even entered into that process, I sensed the love of God afresh. I sensed the peace of God afresh, the joy of the Lord, the smile of my Father who doesn't beat me up. When he says we belong to Christ, think about this. He is a high priest who sympathizes. He doesn't wag his finger. There was a marriage in this church that was going like this some time ago. And one of the, one of the, one of the partners in the relationship was so hard to the other person. It was extraordinary. <laughs> they both loved God. But one of them was so hard, so sort of merciless. And uh, as, we, as we met with them and prayed for them, breakthrough came. Wonderful breakthrough. 
and a softness. And I remember thinking, how can we be so hard on someone when God is so gentle and kind with us? We belong to Christ, our partner, whether you're single, married, our ultimate partner, the one we belong to, the one we keep in step with, is so kind and merciful that, yes, he points things out. But the wonderful offer of the Bible is as we confess, as we make things right, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience flow. He flows. He, he covers us with the fruit of the Spirit. It bubbles up inside of us once again. So what does this mean as we close? I think what this means is a twofold thing. Is that Paul and God would want us to be a people who both allow Jesus the Holy and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to continually wash over us with a seriousness of the sins that are real in our lives. Sin's an old-fashioned word, but I tell you, it is timeless. The ultimate issue of all humans, rich, poor, black, white, is to do with sin. The issue of our hearts. And as Christians, as Christians, it's so helpful to realize I'm crucifying the flesh, which means I need to really give myself to saying, Lord, search my heart. I don't do it myself. I allow you to search my heart. Search it, Lord. Show me. But in the same breath, as well as that challenge, we say, Lord, thank you. But you know what? This fight, this good fight that you're calling me to, which is painful, it's going to take a lot of energy. It's funny, th- isn't it? Do you realize if something's, when you're in pain, it drains you, doesn't it? It's actually tiring. So just, I'm just saying mentally get ready. This, it's a strange thing. I think it's true that life in the spirit is this amazing paradox of wonderfully joyful and peace, peace and all the other fruit of the spirit. At the same time, there is an energy that God calls us to embrace that's needed to continue to actually put to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit. And if we are running so fast, we don't have any energy left. What happens is you do what I did. You just, you're living in the flesh subtly. And I said, no, no, no. I want us to be a people who actually carefully, who walk through this life, realizing it is a great place to put your energy. Lord, Lord, help me to listen to you, to know where are you saying, you're the potter, I'm the clay. I'm always going to be being changed by you. And hopefully, like me, it actually encourages us that, you know, when you look at your life in 5, 10, 20, 30 years, and you see more issues and more sin and more things, and you feel there's more pain almost, as well as the joy. Do you know what? I think, I don't think we should, des- should despair and feel like we're failing at all. I think we're actually following in the footsteps of this great apostle who is saying, you know, as we get closer to Jesus, we need to be those that see with his eyes the things in our lives. Should we stand? I'd like to just pray for us in the last couple of minutes. And my hope is, my desire has been that you have glimpsed a vision, probably a rather different vision than you would normally have, of living in the Spirit. Because sometimes we think of that as only one thing. And I believe Galatians 5 forces us 
to say, actually, real spirit-filled living is a kind of embracing of a crucifixion, picking up our cross, that at the same time leads to joy and peace and patience and kindness, but undoubtedly involves courageously picking up daily something of the cross. So right now, in these just last moments, if there's you, before your king, why don't you just, just lift anything to him that you might feel that's come up? Anything you think, I just, I just want to quickly almost get that to him. Don't worry if it's not, it's fine. It may be that you've just felt, do you know what? I have felt a little bit of a failure. Because as I see those things that I still struggle with, I think, surely I should be more free. And yet, as we've heard today, as long as we have breath in our lungs, there will be a sense in us needing to partner with God in holding that to the cross. And you're not failing. So Lord, I pray, I pray, wonderful King, as you walk amongst us now, that this liberty, this liberty to walk by the Spirit Lord God, would lead us closer to you, not further away. Thank you so much, Lord, that you want us to be a people who genuinely learn to love the things you love as well as to hate the things you hate. Lord, today I pray for genuinely a mature church, a church, Lord God, that understands, Lord God, how it is to walk close to Christ. I pray for any here who perhaps would say, I don't know if I'm a Christ follower. I don't know if I've made that decision. I pray today, Lord, that you would indeed draw very close to them. And they would understand this is a serious thing. To follow Christ means I, I don't just add him in. He is now the Lord. He is the boss. And the things that don't please him, I deliberately choose to crucify with him. If that's you, I would love to talk with you. Uh, as we come to an end in just a moment. But Lord, I pray for all of us here, perhaps who would say, I know, I, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus. I pray, Lord God, that this week you would go with us. We would know your intimacy. We would know the closeness. We would know that we belong to Christ. And therefore, Lord Jesus, we now have a new reference point when we struggle. That actually, I'm joining with you in ongoingly putting to death something. It is messy, it is painful, it is difficult, but actually I'm bringing joy to God. The cross was very messy, but I believe the Father was never more proud. And over your life now, when you experience what seems to be mess and difficulty and you see yet more things in your life, rejoice. Rejoice for your Father in heaven says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. We have a religion, a, we have a gospel with blood at the center. It's messy. And we do, not, we do not run away from that, Lord. We say, let that apparent mess that we can sometimes feel condemned about, let it be seen differently from now on in our eyes as something that testifies that you are still at work, the God who hates sin and is preparing for us an eternity which will be gloriously different. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.